Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 136. Again, here with another uh, recap. Well, actually not a recap, Ryan. This is going to be a, a review or a preview of 2020. 2020. Um, at this point, we don't have any updates on... Uh, five star reviews. So yeah, we're recording this on December. This we're recording this on uh, December twentieth. We're so we're playing this on December thirtieth though. So we we actually so we know, but when we're recording this, we didn't know. That's right. So like, as we sit here today with you listening, we do know, but when we recorded it, we didn't know. It's kind of like a time travel deal. Yeah. Um. So either we're really excited or not. We will be releasing an episode, a short episode tomorrow. Just to let everyone know, I say tomorrow, uh, two days from now, I guess, to let everyone know if we are going in the lake or or our listeners are faithful and loved us and they're only sending Nathan into the lake. And uh, so we'll, we'll be sure to cover that to, uh, on, on uh, January 1st. Josh, we had Dan Stevens and Joe Dancy. Part two of his interview, We really it was really one interview we kind of broke into two parts because he covered the, the recap and um, a preview. So good stuff here. And we'll be back next week, uh, assuming we haven't recorded this next interview with Rob George talking about uh, the impact of the ExxonMobil case. Thank you guys. Hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year's. And we will you hear from us tomorrow, whether we're excited or depressed. Because um, tomorrow we will know and you will know and we will all know. No, not tomorrow. Two days from now. Whatever. We will talk to you in the future and let you know. All right. We have a special guest, uh, Dan Steffens, coming on. He's the president of Energy Perspectives out of Houston. Uh, Dan, great to have you on the show today, man. Been looking forward to get into some of this. Yeah, thanks for giving me a ring. So it's been a few months, I guess, since we had you on. Um Kind of get us up to speed on where the market is, what's changed maybe since we had you on last time. And I know you put out a piece we'll link to in the show notes that will kind of break this down for the listeners for oilprice.com. So listeners, we might reference this a few times. It would be in the show notes so you can check this out. But, um, you know, depending on what day you turn on the news, you know, it's the, the end of the oil and gas industry. But it, there seems to be, Josh, I talked about, there feels like the indicators point that price should go up and to the right next year. Um, are we crazy to think that, or do you think that we should be optimistic about the price for next year, especially WTI? Well, you know, back in October, I wrote an article for oilprice.com, and I said there was really three things standing in the way of higher prices. And, um, you know, one was this OPEC plus agreement. You know, everybody knew they were going to meet in Vienna again at the first part of December and extend their you know, agreement or thought they were going to extend their agreement, but there was some fear that wouldn't happen. Well, that did happen. And not only did they extend the agreement, they uh, Saudi Arabia agreed to voluntarily take another 400,000 barrels a day off the market to help stabilize a price. And as we all know, the part of the reason they did that is because they were doing the big IPO of Aramco and they wanted to, you know, have a high oil price when they did that. So that helped. Now, the second big thing is this, uh, you know, trade war, between the U.S. and China. Personally, I think the fear that that was going to, if it didn't get settled, was going to cause a, you know, some kind of global recession and lower demand for oil. I think that fear has been totally overblown anyway. But now that we, it, it appears we have this phase one agreement on the table and everybody seems to be verbally agreeing to it, if we can get that signed in early uh, January, I think that opens the door to, uh, probably $65 oil 
you know, there's going to be fear expressed that, you know, they, we still haven't signed the agreement and they have to translate it from English to Chinese and all that. So that has to get done. And then the last thing I think is this concept that the U.S. is just going to keep producing more and more oil every year, no matter what the oil price is. And I think we all know that's totally false because we're seeing the uh, active rig count drop like a rock. Yeah, it feels like the um, the the duck thesis is what's kind of keeping the prices high, at least on our side of the pond, because everyone keeps talking about these ducks and the ducks can keep production up for six months. And of course, uh, we've kind of showed that we are uh, duck agnostics. We're not sure how many ducks there are and when they're going to come on or if they're going to come on. But that kind of feels like that was the sentiment, especially in the summertime. Um, but as the rigs go down, the production, if it stays up, at some point the ducks no matter how many they are, they have to come online, and there's only a limited supply of ducks. So, whatever you think about the duck theory, um, the duck, the duck, the duck problem will work itself out here in a few months, no matter who's right. And at that point, if the rig count is still low, um, you're going to see it feels like um, uh, a little bit of tension in the market, especially if that's after the OPEC meeting in March, because if the if the duck issue, the production issue, doesn't work itself out to post March, and OPEC has extended its cuts to, to their June meeting, um, at that point you could see. Uh, shortage, I guess, if or, or a tightening in the market because um, where is this production going to come from? Because the U.S. producers probably won't be able to respond in mass at earliest until uh, the second half of next year. Oh, yeah, I agree. Well, the duck situation really kind of solved itself over the summer. Uh, probably for the six months ended in October, we completed about 2,000 more duck wells and we drilled new wells. So the duck inventory of has been depleted. And think about this from a logical standpoint. If you're an upstream company, you're going to produce. You're going to complete the wells with the best logs. You're not completing your crappy duck wells. You're right. completing your good duck wells. So the very best wells with the best logs got completed. So even that has a think about the duck inventory as a tier one, tier two, three list. And there's probably about a third of the ducks are dead ducks that are never going to be completed. Uh, because some have been sitting in the duck inventory for a couple of years. Right. Uh, and also, I follow uh, several sand companies, frac sand companies, and companies that actually provide equipment that manages the uh, frac sand at the completion site, uh, at the well site. And one of them on their conference call, they said they expected there to be a 20 to 30% decline in well completions from the third quarter to the fourth quarter. And this is why my prediction is we're going to see U.S. production go on decline in the first quarter uh, just because we're not completing nearly enough wells to hold production flat. You already, I mean, if you've been watching the EIA weekly reports, they actually had product U.S. production higher in the second half of November and lowered it in the first two weeks of December. So maybe we've already seen the peak. Yeah, the API da- data I think we had on Energy Week the other day said they were still setting production um, records, if I remember correctly, for the report that would be coming out uh, yesterday, at least by the time it's recording. But mm-hmm. but regardless, it, it, it just can't where, – where, wherever the, the, those numbers are, they just cannot continue. I think that's the thing we all kind of agree on. Um, right, right. You can't keep losing rigs, uh, putting ducks online, and production – has to fall off and then you know how does the market respond to that and you know you talked about the 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 phase one trade deal one of the things i thought was interesting was um 
the, the headlines were reading that the price was staying down because of fear of a China recession or a global recession because of the phase one trade deal. Uh, and then we hit the phase one trade deal. It hadn't been signed officially. And the markets have gone up some. But then the, the sentiment switched to, well, um, hey, you know, it's not enough or, or this, that, and the other. And we, those are all valid debates. But as far as oil price is concerned, it felt like oil prices were kind of contingent on at least phase one getting done. They didn't really respond that much. Um, so I, I kind of think that maybe was, that was being a little bit overemphasized from the news standpoint of how much the, the trade deal was going to impact oil prices because we didn't see the, the the price really move that much, even with the OPEC cut. Some of the OPEC cut uh, statements were like, well, they didn't cut them long enough and stuff like this. So it almost feels like the market isn't really sure how to respond to oil prices. Maybe they're afraid they're going to get burned. Any thoughts on why the prices uh, aren't e- aren't even higher than what they are. Um, if you just go follow the headlines, you feel like by this point they should be a little bit higher. Well, you know they went up by two or three dollars a barrel after the OPEC Plus agreement was announced, and then it went up about another dollar, dollar, a dollar and a half when the Phase One verbal agreements was announced. Well, then now I see. Well, first of all, I think it's backing off today a little bit just because of the holiday season. You've got you know traders that are. Up, taking some profits off the table, and they're going to wait till after the Christmas and New Year's holiday, maybe to get back in. I don't know, but uh, now they're the fear of it not getting signed. But I, but I think the other deal may be that it's kind of like the traders or investors in oil and gas have been feel like they've been fooled so many times mm-hmm. before. You know, we've had these run ups and then pullbacks, run ups, pullbacks, and you know, they they say, okay, let's see some real data where we start seeing like say US production growth flatten out and, you know, global demand in keep increasing. And but you know, that that's the thing about China, China is not going into a recession. Their growth is maybe slowing from eight percent to nine percent, but they're not going into a recession. Well, one of the one of the questions I had following back up with uh, predictions for uh, oil prices next year, we were we were in some meetings uh, in Midland this week, and we were talking with some folks about uh, different projections for next year. There's supposed to be a lot of offshore oil coming online in 2020, and there's concerns about that holding the prices down. Um, I believe it was Gulf. I don't know if it was Exxon or. Uh, or who exactly it was that that was expected to come online in 2020, but it was supposed to be a significant uh, amount of production that they thought would offset the uh, the slowing production in the Permian and and other uh, shale plays in the U.S. Have you has that been factored in with projections for next year in oil prices? Uh, yeah, there's there is some production growth coming from Norway, uh, Brazil. And then now this thing offshore of uh, Guyana that Exxon is operating and Hess is a, their partner on that. That's coming online. Uh, that's some uh, pretty significant increases, but that's being offset by a, a decline across almost all the other countries in the other. Uh, and, you know, nobody talks about the other, but the other represents about 45 percent. When I say other, I'm saying non-OPEC, non-Russia, non-US represents about you know, 40, 45% of global supply and gets very little attention. But uh, in, in that, yes, there's going to be a uh, production increase in 2020 of maybe 500 to 800,000 barrels a day because of Norway, Brazil, and Ghana. But there's nothing after that. And these are all long lead projects. And so it looks like the other kind of goes on terminal decline, unless there's a big increase in oil price, which you know, gets a lot more drilling and activity, 
you know, in other countries. But right now, there's nothing after 2020 to, that is very positive. Um, yeah, so we talked about the the uptick. Um, some people may hear the price hit 70, and they may be concerned. And, you know, we've had the price bump up before, uh, get my hopes up, get out there, get to work. Um, if you look at the, in, the economic indicators out in Midland right now, hotel prices are going down, rent prices are going down for apartment complexes. Um, should we be concerned that we this might be a flash in the pan? I know you kind of have already loosely answered this, but just to put it directly, do we think that we hit 70 in 2020, um, that by the end of 2020, we might have wished we would have stayed in the 50 to 60 range? Yeah, I think the right price for oil is somewhere in the 65 to 70 range. So you say 70, I think that's the right price. I mean, I follow a lot of upstream companies and they, they're making money at 55 hour oil. Uh, they're not making you know the money they made at 100 but we don't need $100 oil. And actually, if we had $100 oil, it'd probably be terrible because it, it that would throw the world into a into some kind of inflationary recession or something. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you always have that risk. If, if the oil price goes too high, you know, they ramp up production and response. But the, the one thing I think we need to consider, too, is with, uh, you know, the job market in the United States so good, these people that have been laid off by Hal Burt and Schlumberger, all the you know the oil field service companies, I mean, they're going to go out and find new jobs. And how many of them are going to be real eager to come back to the oil field? I know the pay is real good, and they probably will eventually, but they're not going to do it overnight. And uh, you know, with the, the massive amount of equipment and you know, well-trained people that you need to ramp up, uh, you know, well completions these days. Uh, I don't think anything is going to happen overnight. I, don't th- I think if the oil price went to 100 tomorrow because of a war in the Middle East, I think it'd take you know four to six months to really start ramping up uh, field activity in the U.S. again. Okay. Um, one more question about prices, and then uh, I guess we have to do a couple other things real quickly. Um, you know, a few months back, the Railroad Commission kind of sent a signal that maybe they're going to change their stance on natural gas flaring. Um, we're talking about high oil prices. Um, we didn't talk about natural gas prices much, but walk me through uh, some potential scenarios if the the railroad commission comes out and says that you know what we're going to really put a stop to this flaring. Um, a, how is that going to impact nat- natural gas prices? But B, uh, how is it going to impact oil prices? Because if you're talking about the Permian, the the, the production of those two uh, commodities are hand in hand all the time. Well, I, I think it would actually imp- in, uh, affect oil prices more than the gas prices. Because if you said you cannot complete your oil well until you have the ability to sell your gas into a pipeline, so you can't flare gas until you can hook up all the commodities, that's going to really slow down completion uh, in the Permian, definitely. Uh, is it you know a good thing? Yes. I mean, we're wasting a lot of energy by flaring gas, so we need to get that in the pipeline. But... Uh, you know, in the short term, we've got more LNG facilities coming on this year. And I think uh, another thing that's kind of missed, we, we have more uh, demand for ethane. You know, a lot of ethane is being left in the gas stream, which increases the BTU content of the gas. And there's going to be a lot higher demand for ethane uh, with these new plants coming online. And, uh, boy, we're going to be a world we're going to dominate the world's ethane market here this by the end of next year. So that's going to be interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would have an effect on, on the price of oil more than gas. Cause I think people do want to hook up their gas as fast as they can. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be interesting. Well, if you took the, if you did slow down the oil production, I can't remember what the numbers of gas uh, that come online comes from the Permian, but it's a substantial amount. So actually, if you did slow down oil production, you would have a, a, a effect on the gas prices. It would be interesting to see. I don't know if they're actually going to do it in 2020 or not. Um, you are you are hearing those signals. Any other trends? Uh, I guess maybe last question for us. Uh, any other trends in 2020 that we should be watching for? Um, things that, I mean, obviously we have a presidential election, but outside of that, is there any anything else that might impact the prices that people aren't talking about at the moment? Yeah, I, I don't see a lot of upside for Henry Hub gas prices, but I do think you're, you should see an increase in the realized price for the Permian companies. A lot of these Permian companies were actually having to pay people to take their gas. I mean, in the second and third quarter results, I saw a lot of uh, Diamondbacks, one you guys follow, uh, I know they were selling their gas way below a dollar. And so if they can just get back to $2, it's a, a big increase in their revenues. So uh, we don't need that. But as far as us seeing $3 gas prices again, I certainly don't see that anytime unless we would just have a brutal first, first quarter winter uh, that would just drain storage. But um, the near term doesn't look uh, much like that. But I, I just think the trend is going to have to be the kind of the realization that the, the oil supply and demand is going to be a lot tighter in six or eight months. And I don't see anything that's going to avoid that. And uh, unless OPEC decides to flood the market, which would be stupid on their part, because they would be undoing the accomplishment they did to get oil prices high. So I think we're going to have some pretty decent commodity prices this year. Okay, Dan, folks that want to follow your work, we're obviously going to link to the oilprice.com article you just released, but where can they find out more? I know you, you release some content regularly, so tell them where they can check you out uh, until you we can get you back on the show again. Yeah, uh, our uh, website is energyprospectus.com, and uh, it's a subscriber service. Uh, people subscribe to get our reports, and we publish independent research on small and large cap uh, publicly traded companies, uh, primarily upstream, but some midstream companies and some technology companies are providing technology for the energy, uh, like rechargeable batteries and stuff like that. So if they're interested in that, just go to www.energyperspectus.com, and uh, if you click on join now, it'll give you a list of all the things we provide okay well it was great to have you on thanks for doing this end of the year recap and look ahead to 2020 and i'm sure we'll be cheering from you throughout the year to see how we are with that 70 wti that sounds that sounds <laughs> i'll be honest with you it sounds good and, and it sounds good in the right way josh and i've said before we don't want 100 oil because we're afraid 100 no. oil will go back and a 20 oil so 70 i think josh is a number that we can live with and be happy with and if we can keep it you know Truth be told, we keep it where it's at right now for a long period of time. Then we'll be we'd be okay, as you said. But uh, but seventy is not not too bad either. So that'll, that'll no. It, it, just remember though that all all oil price cycles overshoot the mark mm-hmm. on the upside mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. downside. Mm-hmm. Just like when you know when when the oil went down into the twenties for a while, that overshot the mark. Well, don't be surprised if a one percent shortage causes a spike. But yeah. it would probably be a short lived spike, and we do not need you know, hundred dollar oil. Cause remember, you know, well completion costs were coming down anyway, even before this started because they were, you know, getting better results, 
you know, with longer laterals, better completion techniques and stuff like that. They don't need a hundred dollar oil. Uh, the profit at $70 oil is going to be almost as good. It was at what it was as a hundred dollar oil. Right. Right. Yeah. And we've actually heard rumblings that some of these companies aren't even drilling their best acreage in tis- as they anticipate good prices in 2020 so that they can um, they can make money at 55 to 60 drilling the less profitable acreage. But as they go into 2020, they expect an uptick in the price and they can drill uh, cheaper, uh, lo- lower, um, oh gosh, lower break-even cost acreage. And so they can actually maximize some profit in 2020. I don't know if that's true or not. We have heard some of those rumblings as well. So um, if that's true and you get the prices at 70, then you could see some companies really, really doing well next year. So, yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what, you know, watch Concho, Pioneer, mm-hmm. Diamondback. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys got a lot of locations. Exactly. And, you know, I'm sure they've forced ranked them, uh, which ones they think are the best. But And then the other thing, you know, they, they have to figure out this char- this parent-child well issue. And so this little lull has probably helped them figure that out so but uh you know one thing we didn't mention on that's a trend is you know uh oil supply there is a weather uh element to that and you know north dakota right now you've pretty much really shut down field activity and probably that the dj basin and the powder river basin are are all very much affected by the weather and you guys are out there in west texas as well so you 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 just show uh slow down your field activity in the first quarter every year so i'm going to be stunned if we don't have if we don't have oil production in the u.s decline in the first quarter i'm just going to be stunned uh, we'll see okay but, all right all well, right ma'am thank you so much for your time today and we will link to everything in the show notes so listeners can check you out and look forward to talking to you again next year thanks a lot Dan. all right thanks a lot so uh joe we we had a, a guy, I think you know, Dan Steffens. He, uh, he joined us on the show a little earlier to talk about what his projections are for 2020. Uh, there's lots of things to consider, natural gas, uh, gas, gas prices, oil. Um, in general, we've talked about the rig counts going down by 26% with oil prices up. Do you see uh, – talk to us a little bit about what you see for 2020 in terms of rig – Rig count, do you think that's going to rebound this year, or will it take a little longer for that to uh, come to fruition? Uh, what are your thoughts about oil price and, and rigs and production and uh, overall market health? Uh, that's a good, good question. I guess, first of all, let me just, I'll repeat what I said last year. Such a, natural gas is going nowhere. And even though we, we've built, like, uh, I couldn't believe it. I just was reading an article in a Canadian publication. We built like 17 liquefied natural gas facilities to get, you know, the natural gas exported out of the United States because globally everybody else is using, I mean, a lot of these people are using coal for, you know, factors where, where gas can be used. And, you know, we're even with the increase in exports and we're going to become the largest exporter of natural gas by liquefied natural gas. Anyway, um, even with all that increase in demand, you know, we still have way, way too much natural gas in the United States and in our pipeline system is such that it's, somewhat constrained. And I, I mean, I think you saw too, probably, you know, New York City and some areas have restricted, you know, because of the restrictions, some of the utilities there have told new new construction, you can't put in um, natural gas appliances, you know, not because there's an ordinance, it's because we don't have the supply. And, um, and they're working on that, the pipeline, you know, the pipeline issue, the supply issue, the export issue, we still, it'll take a few years for natural gas to work on through. So that being said, I, I think in the coming year, we'll see 
Drilling will be focused on oil and natural gas liquid rich areas. Um, for oil prices and oil activity, I see oil prices, you know, they're about $60 now. I see them at year end about 70, uh, which is another good, you know, $10 increase. And the reason is that we're going to see another million dollar or million barrel per day or million and a half barrel per day increase in demand. This It happens every year, every year, Ryan. And so uh, we have 100 million barrels of demand. So we're going to have more demand. Essentially, we're going to have flat supply, and that's going to surprise a lot of people. People are like, oh, my gosh, what are those guys doing in the Permian? It's like, well, God, when you lay off, you know, when you lay off all your completion crews and you don't drill, I mean, this right. is sort of what happens. You don't, you have a decline curve, and this stuff depletes, and it depletes pretty darn quickly. Um, and on top of that, I think you're going to, you're seeing one of the main problems, um, one of the main problems that you're seeing now and I've gotten feedback on this in the last couple of years, is in the political arena, whether you're a regulator or a politician, a lot of those folks don't realize how important energy is. And it's very easy for them to set up additional hurdles that are costly, that push out development. And so, you know, when you run your discounted cash flow model, even if you're using $60 a barrel oil, you know, when you can't get your your project permitted because it's been delayed two years because of some protest or lawsuit, it really screws your 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 planning up, your finances up, and uh, and it makes it makes it more risky. And so you re you require a higher return. And so I think going into 2020, especially oh my lord, and I hate to even bring this up with the political situation going on um, nationwide with the elections. And, you know, global warming and oil and gas being sort of front and center, um, regardless of how you feel about it, there is a huge risk that if you get someone in there that pledges to um, essentially have a policy that's anti-oil and shut fracking down, um, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think constitutionally they can do it, but they sure as heck can, can make things go through the courts and make lawyers you know, really wealthy for a time. And I think I, <laughs> I listened to one of your interviews, um, um, God, last week. And I think you were talking to uh, Joseph Benedict, I think, and or I can't remember the name of the, but you were just talking about, it seems like every every uh, oil firm now, you need a you need to have like a batch of in-house lawyers to yeah. deal with everything. And it's, uh, and that's sort of, it just makes things more expensive. And so I think that's, so, so I see the rig count recovering from 800, but I don't see it going, I don't see it totally recovering, but I see it stabilizing here and maybe moving a little bit forward, especially if oil prices, you know, start to move in the, into the mid sixties and the $70 barrel uh, range. And I will say, I mean, equities, you know, being with the spindle top fund and I tell my students this, and I said, this is my own opinion is that the discrepancy in what the equity values are for oil and gas companies, especially producers, and what they should be using your models, a lot of that is being driven by risk and it's political risk and it's regulatory risk. And I've heard this from, I've been to a number of programs and seminars and you know the two states that seem to come up in discussions with regulators, and the regulators will tell you this, they work for the states, some of these states, Colorado and New Mexico have gotten, you know, it's much tougher there to get permits and get things online and more expensive to operate. And of course, you know, I, you know, we talk about it. I said, well, you know, the 
fact is, you may need the regulations, that's fine. But when you put in regulations and you increase the cost, you're just going to get less activity. And so the money's going to go elsewhere, it won't be spent. And so I think part of the discrepancy between the equity prices for energy, where they are and where they should be and where the S&P 500 is, is due to regulatory and political risk. And I guess the inter- I just found this out yesterday. I was shocked. The um, the um, Apple computer, the market cap of Apple computer is greater than every S&P 500 energy company combined. And so you look at this one technology. So the money, you know, the money and the other thing, capital allocation, there's a lot of endowments. A lot of countries, they don't want to invest in energy, oil and gas anymore. And then, you know, they have protests. And actually, there's a protest. I think the Harvard-Yale game, a bunch of students went running around on the Harvard field and they stopped the game for like a half hour. It was really, right. I, I right. yeah, it was crazy. I saw the replay of that. It was yeah. pretty cool. I, think I was watching it live, although, quite frankly, between you and me, I think I would have to watch OU in Texas versus Harvard-Yale. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, seeing all the seeing all the students out there, I was like, somebody joke, you know, God, wait till the snow comes and this slip, the, you know, turn off the power and take away their cars and take away their heat. And see what they think about oil and gas after that. But but the bottom line, it's a risk. And it's a risk to to investors. And if you're not investing and you're divesting in that area, the misallocation of capital is can be extreme. And, I, and that's another reason I think we've seen such poor performance. That's 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 my own personal opinion. It may or may not be supported, and I know people will argue against it. And going forward, you know, these climate change people, they're serious. I mean, there was a one of the guys at SMU I work with, he was at a conference in London a month ago, and he was at the airport, and one of the climate change activists jumped on top of one of the planes there and glued himself to the top of the plane. <laughs> and my, my buddy from, you know, he t- sends me a snapshot from Heath, I think he was at Heathrow, oh, and he wow. shows you know, this guy, and the police are all out there, and this guy is, he's actually, it was one of those deals where you 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 walked out, and he essentially, you know, right where where the entry ramp goes into the plane, there's a gap, and he yeah. had jumped up on top of the plane. Oh, and apparently, glued himself. And you know, how the heck do you how do you heck do you get the dude? I said, hey, this should just take off and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no but, doubt, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and he sent me some. Well, actually, he sent some great pictures that are so funny because they and they they were all the these they weren't funny. They're were, I understand where these pe- people are coming from. Global warming is here. But is, in my opinion, the effects have been grossly overstated because you can't even model, they can't even model ozone. Right. They can't even model particulate matter two years ahead of, of time under the Clean Air Act. How are they going to model what's going to happen 10 years ago globally? And then you have China and India, and rightfully so, churning out, you know, growing like we were 50 years ago. And I don't blame them. And I don't blame them for burning all the coal. But it's creating a huge investment issue and a, a dichotomy. Um, and if you want me to talk, because what? of all this, my students, I mean, starting a couple of years ago, came in and, darn, Professor Dancy, can't you talk a little bit about solar and wind turbines? And <laughs> you know, we want to learn about this stuff because we know oil and gas is not where the future is. When I heard that, it's like I about fell off the chair. Right. And it's like, and that, that's why I'm so glad to be continuing to teach because that's the impression a lot of people get when they walk in my classroom. This is even in Texas and Oklahoma. Like, Lord knows if I was in Massachusetts or Washington, D.C., right. what the reaction would be. They probably would tar and feather me and throw me out the front door. But, um, but solar and wind 
are what well, I'm, you know, Texas is the number one wind state right now. And we're going to be the very close to the number one solar state after I think this year or the next year. So um, there are gains being made, but the money and the jobs and the investments and the returns, a lot of them are tax driven, which is not all that bad, but you know, going forward, we're going to need oil for at least the next 50 years in one way or because of the, the intermittency of solar, the inter- intermittency of wind, and the fact it's really difficult to store that energy once you produce it, especially at night when it's right. you know, the sun on the other side of the world. Well, so anyway. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's great. I know, you, we, I know we're up against the clock here. Let me ask you one final question here. You talked about policy regulators. You follow this pretty closely. The Texas Railroad Commission kind of sent a shot across the bow to the industry back in August, I believe, saying, hey, um, we voted two to one on flaring. What should we take that to mean as we go into 2020? Will the Railroad Commission clamp down on the flaring issue? Was that just kind of a warning? Uh, any insight on what we might expect with that as we go into 2020? Well, I can tell you the regulators in North Dakota and Texas are both very concerned about flaring. I can tell you industry is very concerned about flaring. Um, and I can tell you, you know, going forward, if you look at the numbers, I mean, I was shocked when I saw the increase in flaring activity in the last five years right. in Texas and in North Dakota. And actually, I've been told um, Professor Coleman that I work with at SMU, he's writing a paper on flaring. And he goes, Jay goes, Joe, I got their latest numbers in 2019. And he goes, they're getting much worse. Because really? you aren't going to believe it. And he's proposing that they put in some type of prorationing and they start essentially, you know, if you have natural gas to limit how much natural gas you can put in a pipeline so that everybody can produce a little bit of oil and you know, a little bit. Of ice, I'm not sure that's going to work, but I haven't seen his research either. But he's writing a he's writing a um, op ed for the Dallas Morning News. And I'll be curious to see what his proposal and he's very um, he's very pro development. He's very he understands the economics, put it that way, of the oil business. And so he, um, on one hand, you want to you want to reduce the flaring, but you realize that that if you just totally prohibit it, um, it, it may do more harm than good you know, based on the current regulatory and legal structures. But it's going to be a huge issue. And I, you know, all the things that I've studied over the last um, six months that, you gee, if there's something I want to become an expert in and go on the talk circuit, or actually if I wanted to run for a railroad commissioner, I mean, I thought, well, flaring would be the perfect <laughs> thing to do. In fact, if I ran for railroad, whoever runs for railroad commissioner, if you want to do a great challenge, you know, all you have to do is get up in front of the public and say, I'm against flaring. These folks are letting way too much gas and show the chart. And I guarantee you there will be a stampede. Whoever comes up with that, uh, there'll be a stampede to get that person in office because a lot of that is state money, it's federal money, it's mineral owner money, and it's it's money that, you know, you don't pay royalties when you're flaring. And, you know, millions of dollars per day are being lost to the state of Texas for our, our educational system um, due to the flaring activity. And part of it, the build-out is occurring. Now, they are building out the pipelines. It's not purposely. I mean, we're, we're building things out, but it just takes time. Right. Um, and so that, that'll be a major issue going forward. That's a it's, it's exciting. And actually, I, I jokingly, I, I posted on LinkedIn that I thought I might start a group called, you know, Americans Against Flaring. And I had a whole bunch of people <laughs> sending me private messages. Hey, you know, that's great. And then I started thinking about it. You know, I'm not quite sure, 
you know, I want to be president of this organization because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, oh, points both for and against. And I, I, yeah, I don't want to be a politician. I'd rather just be an academic and give Dancy, me, give me. Dancy for commissioner 2020. You heard it here <laughs> first for breaking the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope all is going well over at SMU. Um, and thank you. You've been a, a wonderful guest for us for at least, I guess, two years now almost. And so we really appreciate you taking the time to get on here. We will link to your LinkedIn profile, which I think is probably got to be one of the most popular LinkedIn profiles in the oil and gas industry. You post a lot of good stuff. So we'll link to that. Um, some of this index fund stuff you mentioned is on one of your more recent posts. So listeners can go check that out. And uh, look forward to talking to you again in 2020. And we'll be following these issues. And I know you will. So look forward to hearing your thoughts on them as the year progresses. Uh, thank you, sir. Have a great Christmas and good New Year. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Have a good one.